Welcome to Generations. Kevin Swanson, your host with you. Bill Jack from Worldview Academy, also in studio this time. And Bill, want to talk a little bit about hagiography in this edition of the program, that is, the study of the lives of the saints, those who have gone before us. Oh, I, I, thought, it, I thought that was the, what was one, you know, carved in the walls and the tombs of the pharaohs. Not exactly, no. no. Nope, nope. No? Nope. This is... Uh, this is more. Oh, 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 this is this is the stuff that that graphics designers do on the computer. No, no, this is hagiography. This is the do-da, study of the great do-da. saints who have gone before us. Oh, uh-huh. we don't use the word very much, but Bill's kind of knew this can, vocabulary, can, and yeah. that's fine. Bill, can you spell that? H a g i o g r a p h y. I think I got that right. I think you. I think you might doing just well. win the spelling bee if I do this. I think you did. All right. Well, it turns out that World Magazine. Uh, has included a somewhat critical assessment of Jim Elliott in a recent post on WNG.org. And Christianity Today also sponsored a somewhat critical assessment of Elizabeth Elliott. And a new biography brings out, I would say, somewhat negative details of her life in an attempt to, I guess, balance it all out for us. Um, The new book points out that Elliott's missionary life bore little fruit. Uh, all three of her marriages contain serious flaws. The trials of her first marriage, somewhat mythologically presented by evangelicals uh, as compared to the trials that she has gone through, she went through. Her beliefs on dating, worship, courtship, and other major issues shifted greatly. It said Christianity Today, I think, is hoping that she migrated into a more feminist direction overall. Wouldn't surprise me. Um, But... There's a warning, of course, not to get too carried away with our hagiography. Uh, that is, we're not praising people uh, beyond who they really were and what they really accomplished. Um, so I'm going to get into some of this on this edition. Now, a couple of quick things. I, I'm actually not very much in favor of kicking dirt over the graves of those who have gone before us, nor am I in favor of Monday morning quarterbacks trying to reconstruct how somebody went into one of the most dangerous areas of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ as if they could do it better than those who have gone before us. Nor should we look to set up Christian celebrities. Agreed. So Agreed. There, there's a fine line in, in, in navigating between those two monsters of Scylla and Charybdis, you know, and how do we how do we recognize the great accomplishments of those who have risked it all for the cause of Christ, and yet also remind ourselves that they are just as we are. They have feet of clay. So well, we can fall on one side or the other yeah. on that, and we do a disservice, not just to the individual, we do a disservice to the cause of Christ, because we have to remind ourselves that 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 God doesn't need us, but he uses cracked vessels, cracked pots. When, when, when I was a kid and the crock pot just came out, my grandmother went into the store and she said, I want one of those crack pots. Well, we're all crack pots, aren't we? We yeah. are. We're all cracked vessels, but God indwells us, his Holy Spirit indwells us and lets his light shine through all of those cracked vessels and blesses the world. So 
it's that fine line of 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 honoring the the work that Christ has done through individuals without elevating them to a position of idolatry. Does that make sense? Here's something Teddy Roosevelt said. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails with daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither knew victory nor defeat. There's some truth uh, to that, but as you say, that there is that glorifying man that's something of a problem. We want to be careful with biography and history. In that, history is not primarily to be centered around the works of men, but around the works of God. What did God do through this person? What did God do through these people? And what did he accomplish in their mission? Uh, Humans are disappointing, no question about it. But I'm not in favor of airing a bunch of dirty laundry of those who have gone before us as much. Granted, the Bible gives us the good, the bad, the ugly. But the Bible also demonstrates a trajectory of faith in men like Moses, He was pretty much a wimp at the beginning, but watch him as he's lifting that rod and trusting God and realizing God is going to bring about a great redemption on that day. Or Gideon, who's hiding out, you know, for some time, but after a while he gets in the game and he's a man of faith. Or David, Samson as well. Samson, of course, it was the last hurrah that really brought everything together. But the Bible brings out these characters as men who believed in God. The point is that we focus in upon their faith in God, not the thing they did, but the thing they did in faith, that's the thing that matters. Yeah. Their, their, their faith life is one that is God-word, and therefore the report that we give concerning their life is a God-wordness. Uh, we need to commend their courage. There's no easy way to bring the gospel into Satan's territory and pillage the strong man's house. I'm telling you, there's no easy way to walk into Alka territory and do what the Elliots attempted to do. Uh, the thing we need to focus in upon is their faith in God, their courage to do it. They went in faith in the living God. Listen to how the Apostle Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. For we would not, brothers, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, inasmuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us again. Amen and amen. Be back with more in just a moment on Generations. Hello, my friends. For the last 15 years, the Generations team has produced a Christian curriculum specifically for families who want to give their children a God-centered, Bible-saturated, biblical worldview-based education. Our commitment is to restore the Christian faith, generational faith in an age where we are losing faith in this country and almost anywhere around the world where Christian children attend secular schools or use secular curriculum and imbibe secular culture. Now, we're not relying on the pre-Christian Greeks for an educational model here. We're not relying on the post-Christian secularists for the education model either. Our curriculum is based in a biblical worldview. We put hundreds of Bible verses in the history books and integrate the truths into the subjects. We want to glorify God on every page of the science books. We immediately integrate knowledge into life application 
and natural revelation with special revelation. We keep Christ at the very center of the history books with preparing the world for Jesus and taking the world for Jesus. I believe God is calling this generation in this highly secularized age to a radical change in how they disciple their children. Please check out our program for education of your children and grandchildren at www.generations.org. And we're back on Generations, speaking of the great men and women of the faith who've gone before us, being cautious not to do this idol worship thing on the one side or ignore the works of faith that they accomplished despite their foibles. All right, Samson had a few foibles, so did Gideon. But in the end, they demonstrated faith. And that's the message of Hebrews 11, Bill. And it starts there. Hebrews 11 starts with, he who comes to God must first believe that God is. It starts with faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And it's not that they accomplished these things on their own doing. It's they started with believing God. And again, God uses cracked vessels all the time. I, I, I'm amazed that, that God still wants to use me. Mm-hmm. Little old me. Little old me. And, and, mm-hmm. and as stubborn as I am, Mm-hmm. As flawed as I am, mm-hmm. I always tell people, don't look at my feet. Don't look at my feet because they're made of clay. Mm-hmm. We all have That's feet right. of clay. Mm-hmm. It's only the power of the Holy Spirit working through us that we can claim anything. That's why we preach Christ and him crucified. And I don't want to decry Jim Elliott, Elizabeth Elliott. In fact, when we put together American Faith, 27 sketches from Winthrop to Wilkerson, Bill, we we tried to identify what we believe to be the strongest examples of men and women of faith of the 20th century. It was a bit of a challenge. C.S. Lewis was probably the greatest Christian writer of the 20th century, but he wasn't Polycarp. He wasn't Martin Luther. No, he wasn't George no, Whitfield. No, I, I disagree William with Carey, him on a couple of places. Or Jonathan Edwards. Yeah. He's not, he's not as what we find in previous generations. I would say that the 20th century is one of the most ignominious generations ever. Why? Well, because we're in Christian retrograde. Christianity failed as a cultural influence. We get an F minus. Well, except for the, uh, for the entry about, about me that was in there. We, we didn't include what? you there in was, the book What? Was American it edited Faith. out? No, we pulled it all out. What? Yeah. Say what? Well, when it came down to it, here's what we got. We got Elizabeth Elliot. We put that in American Faith. I highly recommend this book to you, friends. I mean, there are examples of faith over the last 400 years of American history. There it is, American Faith, 27 sketches from Winthrop to Wilkerson. A lot of fun, by the way. This book is a fun book to read. It's emotional at points, but it certainly brings out some great examples of faith that come out of America over the last several hundred years. You've got to get a copy of this for your family. It's American Faith, 27 sketches of great American faith from Winthrop to Wilkerson. But, uh, the 20th century did have some decent people. I mean, J. Gresham Machen. I've got Henry Morris here. Now, most of these are, I would say, not recognizable, fairly obscure in terms of the scheme of things. I actually did choose David Wilkerson. He was a man of faith. He had a trajectory that was interesting. I think he contributed greatly to the Jesus movement of the 1970s. Um, and I think, you know, here's a man who crosses boundaries. Uh, remember when he comes into the uh, gang warfare uh, out on the streets of New York? And I think it was Nikki Cruz came, I'll cut you up. I'll cut yeah. you into pieces. And what he said is, 
Every it's little okay. piece, yeah. Yeah, you cut me into pieces. Every piece of my body is going to say, I love you, yeah. and I'm going to tell you about the love of Jesus. So he he was a man of faith. I, I, I think there are examples of men and women of faith of the 20th century, and I'd recommend to you American Faith, our, our little book, really geared towards, I'd say, about 13-year-olds, eighth grade, but uh, but share that with your whole family. It's a great read aloud for the whole family. It's called American Faith. Um. But, uh, you know, there's also indigenous missionaries traversing the Himalayas right now that are bringing the gospel into the far reaches and, and risking imprisonment. Uh, our family has been supporting one of these indigenous missionaries. Uh, uh, he's from Tibet, and he's, uh, he crisscrosses the Himalayas and brings the gospel and equips pastors and elders across the Himalayas right now. I do believe there are some heroes around the world and to this day. It's just like in, in, in Hebrews. It says— you know, they shut the mouths of lions. They receive back the dead. And we go, yes way. But then it goes on to say, and some lived in holes in the ground. Some were sawn in two. Yeah. And, it, and, and these were people that nobody knows about. That's right. But it goes on to say, men, they were men of whom the world was not worthy. That's right. You and I know people just like that. We know them locally. Mm-hmm. We know them nationally. It, and they may not be well-known outside of a, a very small circle, but they have had influence that will rock eternity. Hmm. Wow. Well, friends, here's one more point I want to make, is the 20th and 21st centuries have relied upon women leaders and writers, many dominating the Christian book market, especially in the latter part of the 20th century. And here's the deal. Some things you got to remember is that readers are leaders. Readers are leaders. And why are women providing a fair amount of the written material and leading in the churches in the present day? Well, it's because readers are leaders and men are not taking the time to read. Why? Because they're too busy playing video games. And you know, there's no way to salvage society. There's no way to salvage the church or the family without men who lead and men who read. So keep that in mind. I I think this is something else to say about the 20th century. Now, Bill, I finished writing a 750-page book focusing on world history, but also missions and the introduction of the Christian faith to all of the major nations around the world. So just completed a massive 2,000-year, every continent view of what Jesus has done over the last 2,000 years. Very, very interesting, very encouraging, very exciting. And there have been intrepid, courageous Christians that by faith engage the mission work around the world, continent by continent. Island by island, much of the curriculum that we present is biographical. Always telling the best stories, that's what we want to do. I think telling the stories is the way to teach history. Yeah. The most interesting and engaging stories we can find in all of human history, I think that adds depth and color to our history. And that's what we've done in our curriculum. American Faith, as well as All the World for Jesus, coming out in just about four or five months from now. But uh, what matters most is to keep an eye on what God is doing. So again, it's the works of God, not so much the works of men, but also the faith that these men and women have in God as they pursue the kingdom work that is set before them. Amazing. It's amazing how God works through people, how he brings his gospel and his salvation to the nations, how he judges nations and has mercy upon the nations. All of that characterizes our approach to world history and American history. Um, And I encourage you to this material. As we wrap up this edition, Bill, I want to tell one story because this one is stuck in my mind out of the hundreds, if not thousands of stories that we have told. James Chalmers of New Guinea, amazing. When James Chalmers 
arrived on the scene in New Guinea in 1875, the mission work was still well in place, but only two native teachers remained alive and serving Jesus in the place. James Chalmers conducted multiple missionary journeys accompanied by native workers throughout the southern parts of Papua New Guinea. On one particular journey, Chalmers visited 105 villages, 90 of which had never been discovered by Europeans. He was firm on his stance that missionaries ought not to use guns for defense from the natives. They must assume the risks of life and limb in the service of Jesus. Now, again, there are couch potato Christians. There are easy chair Christians. There are Monday morning quarterback Christians that would contradict this kind of thing. But this was his choice. He said they must assume the risk of life and limb in the service of Jesus. Quote, an axe was stolen. Every place about was searched for it. During the search, the owner of the axe, one of the teachers, ran off for his gun and came rushing over with it. I ordered him to take it back and in the evening told them it was only in New Guinea that guns were used by missionaries. It was not so in any other mission I knew of. And if we could not live amongst the natives without arms, we had better remain at home. And if I saw arms used again by them for anything except birds or the like, I should have the whole of them thrown into the sea. Although his companions would have always preferred to have armaments handy, Chalmers had to settle more than one tense conflict with words. On one visit to a particular dangerous place, the ship captain was wounded by spears and at least one native killed in the altercation. Nonetheless, the missionary stayed on to minister. In his journals, James Chalmers wrote, Concerning his wife, this is amazing. I'd love to get to know this woman. Listen, Mrs. Chalmers decidedly opposed our leaving. God would protect us, she said. We came here for Christ's work, and he would protect us. We consented to the vessel's leaving, and I gave the lad some medicine for the captain. We had our evening prayers uh, reading Psalm uh, 46 and feeling that God was truly our refuge. The next day, the missionaries were invited to a cannibal feast involving two men and a child. This is just how terrible this was. Oh, it's horrible. Their own lives obviously still very much in jeopardy. However, quote, amidst all the troubles, Mrs. Chalmers was the only one who kept calm and very well. (laughs) So Mrs. Chalmers is right there all the time, uh, strong in faith, pursuing the ministry. James Chalmers' narrative goes on for 300 pages of similar stories, almost always life-threatening, gruesome at points, but always full of love and hope for people submerged in darkness for centuries on end. By 1882, the East Cape Church counted 21 baptized persons who professed the faith in Christ and had given up heathenism. Another missionary, Wyatt Gill, organized a second group of 13 native missionaries from Aratonga and introduced them to a mission work in New Guinea on November 22nd, 1883. Reporting on the spiritual progress of the mission work of 1884, Wyatt Gill described three worship services held on Sundays in Port Moresby with 100 to 250 persons gathered. Already, 160 hymns had been translated into the native language. A native teacher, Ruataka, was providing the message. Tattooed naked women were gathered on one side of the building with the men seated on the other side. Only the church members were properly clothed. Out of 850 residents, there were 57 Christians. Not a bad percentage. Only the Gospel of Matthew had been translated by this time. While visiting Hula, about 50 miles to the south of Moresby, the team discovered that several teachers sent to the area had been murdered. This happened all the time. Wyatt writes, We spent a pleasant Sabbath at Hula. The three services of the day were well attended. The murderers of our teachers were present. Imagine this. Mr. Chalmers in the afternoon spoke strongly about the immodesty of the Hulans. Several hung down their heads in shame. Further up the coast, better things were reported at Pari. The heathen uh, grove had been burned down to the stumps, and the little church of 10 members was led by a native pastor named Isako. After 25 years of service among the New Guinea natives, James Chalmers attempted one last danger-filled journey into the Fly River Delta on the far southeastern 
side of the country. Previous exploratory trips of the river had proven these uh, tribes extremely hostile. The mission team approached Gorabari Island on the east side of the Delta. While conducting a worship service in the mission boat on March 7th, 1901, a ferocious band of natives surrounded them in canoes, armed to the teeth with clubs, knives, and spears. Hoping to detract the natives from the rest of the crew, Chalmers volunteered to go ashore alone and trust God for the outcome. A young pastor, Oliver Thompson, insisted he would join him. That was the last they were seen by the mission party. They were beaten with clubs, beheaded, cooked, and eaten by the natives. In his official report concerning the death of James Chalmers, Governor Sir William McGregor, referred to the missionary as the apostle of the Papuan Gulf. He wrote, I am not alone in the opinion that Mr. Chalmers has won the data that he would have wished for of all others in New Guinea and for New Guinea, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and did not love their lives even unto the death. Revelation 12 and verse 11. Well, that wraps up the life of James Chalmers, one of the most uh, remarkable missionaries uh, in the history of the 19th century. And uh, probably working in the most dangerous area of the world at that time. So friends, these are the sorts of stories we need to tell. And we need to remember there were men and women of faith that were the first pioneers in some of these extremely dangerous mission works. I'd encourage you to our books, American Faith, and of course, Taking the World for Jesus, which soon will be All the World for Jesus. Uh, we have doubled the size of this, and hopefully it will be released within the next three to four months. Well, that wraps up this edition of the Generations Broadcast. This is Kevin Swanson inviting you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation. <laughs>